scripture today comes from Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are under we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented yourselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me together? Our Father in heaven, we, we come to your word and we're thankful for it. It's a mercy that we have it open in front of us. May we use this time well. May you equip the saints for the work of ministry, encourage the faint-hearted, call in those who don't know you, uh, and build up your church by your word. And in all of it, we ask that you'd be honored and glorified. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It might be helpful to think about what Paul is not saying and has not been saying in Romans chapter 6. And one author helps us when he says this. I think it was a helpful uh, way to think through it. He is not saying, speaking of Christians and their relation to sin, he is not saying that sin has been destroyed as though Christians live in a perfect world. He is not saying that we no longer experience the influence and impact of our past life as though we had never been in Adam. He is not saying sin's presence has been eradicated in our lives as though Christians were already perfect. But he is saying that we are no longer citizens of the kingdom in which sin reigns. We are no longer its slaves or its subjects. We have become citizens of the kingdom of Christ in which grace reigns. We've seen in chapter 6 the pervasive language of this union with Christ, this with Him language that pervades the entire chapter. We, if we are in Christ, if we have placed our faith in Him, if we are Christians, we are bound to Him. He would say we're united to Him. We're united to Him in His death and in His resurrection. And He says because of that union with Christ, because we're bound with Him, when He died, we died. We have died, he says, to sin, so we're no longer subject to it. It no longer holds dominion over us, and we are indeed to not let sin reign in our bodies. But Paul is going to ratchet that up a bit. He's going to take that a touch further. He's going to add a bit more texture to what our union with Christ means with the passage that ends chapter 6. See, Christians are those who have been set free from sin to become slaves of righteousness. And that's the, the dominant analogy that's going to get through the end of chapter 6. That he describes then, what, what does it mean to have the slavery to righteousness 
And he says to present, if you are in Christ, you need to continue to present yourselves to that enslavement. And then he's going to tell us that the results of that are really good. In verse 14 of chapter 6, Paul asserted this, this great truth. That we're united with Christ, and if we're united with Christ, then sin will have no dominion over you, because we're not under the law anymore, but we're under grace. This great truth that if you're in Christ, you're not under the dominion of sin and death any longer. You're not in the reign of the old Adam, the first Adam, and under the fall anymore, that the second Adam has come, and he's broken that, and he's brought in a new age to given you a, a new reality where the, the reign of sin and death is gone, and there's a new reign, this reign of grace. But what we must not do with that grace is what he asks in chapter 15. He says, what then? He's proposing a, perhaps a, a shot at his gospel when he says, well, what are we to say to this? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? For those in Christ, Paul is going to slam the door over and over again on that kind of thought. He slams the door on any sort of license to sin. There's no license to sin in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he slams the door on any sort of justification for ongoing and continual sin. He, he doesn't have any room for holy excuses for why I need to commit certain sins. He, he is done with that, right? He, he says, by no means. The, the relationship between sin and the Christian in chapter 6 is abundantly clear. You're dead to it. The body of sin, he says, has been brought to nothing. You're free from its reign and dominion, and it should not have dominion over you. And so the, there are two questions in chapter 6. One of them started in verse 1, and now we have another one in verse 15. In verse 1, it says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then verse 15, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And both of those questions he answers with the same phrase, by no means, no way, absolutely not. God forbid that we answer that in the affirmative. He, he is clearly articulating that those who are in Christ are under a new reign with a new reality and sin is not a part of that anymore in a reigning way. That that is past. It has been crucified with Christ. It is done away with. Under the reign of grace, sin isn't now more acceptable because we're not under the law anymore, we're under grace. Now sin is kind of okay. There's a little bit more leniency. That's not true. Sin isn't okay now. It's brought to nothing now. That's what Paul has said about the Christian's relationship to this. And this is consistent with the, the nature of grace that we see throughout the Scripture. Here's what grace does. It, it doesn't just save. It, it transforms. It changes. It, grace isn't God's pardon forgiveness alone. It's empowerment for living in a way that brings Him honor and glory. It, it's the reign of grace that brings salvation and the reign of grace that empowers sanctification. It changes and transforms. Think of it in terms of Cinderella. Cinderella, she's distraught. She's not allowed to go to the ball. Stepmother and sisters leave without her. She's running, at least in the Disney version, running and crying in the garden. She's destroyed. And her fairy godmother appears. And what does she do? She starts making her dreams come true, right? She transforms her. You have nothing to go to the ball with. Here's, here's a dress to go to the ball. I'll just say the word and, and bippity-boppity-boo or whatever. And like, you have the, what you need to go to the ball. But what happens if her fairy godmother said those words, changed her, and said like, and now go for it. Good luck walking to the ball in those heels. You know, like, have a, have a good time getting there before midnight and back. It's going to be tough. 
she doesn't do that. And, and grace doesn't do that either. Grace is like that. It, it doesn't just change us and transforms us. It gets us all the way to the ball, right? And, and grace, it doesn't save us and then leave us to do the rest. It's never worked that way in the scripture at all. It saves and it sanctifies. It saves and it transforms. It pardons and it empowers. They always go together. It empowers living a life free from sin. Grace doesn't open up the door for, for more sin. Here's more room for more sin now because you're not under the law, but under grace. It doesn't give room for sin to kind of be okay now. Paul says that twice. By no means. God forbid. What grace does is it frees us for holiness. It frees us to live totally and wholly unto the one true living God. And scripture everywhere gives this clarion call, this clear call to God's people to be a holy people. And you know how that's empowered? By the grace of God. You dig down deep enough, and anyone who wants to ask the questions, sincerely ask the questions or pose the objections of verse 1 and verse 15... You dig down deep enough behind that, who, who, someone who would sincerely state even the sentiment of that, and you're going to find one who's trying to justify sin. And Paul says, don't do that, Christians. There is no justification for sin any longer. To the one who's justifying sin or agreeing in any sense with the sentiment of verses 1 and verse 15, Paul asks this question. He, he poses a question of his own, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... Your slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He says everyone's a slave. Uh, Bob Dylan said it this way. He said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You guys know this song? You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And he didn't come up with that on his own. He's leaning on the Apostle Paul whether he knew it or not there. I don't know if he did or not. So you dig into the history, find somebody that knows. Like, he, he's, he's giving chapter 6 of Paul there. You're going to serve somebody. All are obeying something. And so Paul is saying, all are a slave to something or someone. And the thing or the one that you obey is the thing or the one that you're enslaved to. And the way that you live your life, what you actually practically serve, is going to show the thing that you're enslaved to. And there's a strong link here throughout this passage of obedience and, and slavery. It's necessarily so, right? Like slaves obey masters. That's what they do. And Paul is saying what you obey, you're a slave to. And he narrows the options for us making it abundantly clear that there are only really practically two options in front of us. There's no gray area, there's no middle ground here, because he knows the words of Christ that no one can serve two masters. You, you never have two. You only have a master. You can be a slave to sin, he says, because you're obeying sin, or you can be a slave to obedience. We, we often think of freedom as freedom is doing what we want. And let me tell you that sin is content to let that happen. Because in Adam, what you want is to sin. And when you obey sin, you're a slave to sin. That's what Paul says. So we think freedom is doing what you want, and Paul says that's slavery to sin. There is a real reign to sin. It can make one, verse 12 says, don't let it make you obey its passions. The implied there is that it can make you obey its passions if you're under its power. 
There are real passions that it wants you to obey. And so when you feel like, hey, I just, I, I love being able to do what I want, actually what you're saying is that I love slavery. It's not freedom. It's slavery. You could put a Christian label on it and say, well, I'm under grace so I can do what I want. But again, let's ask this. What if you want to sin? And we say, well, I'm under grace. I can do what I want. But what if you want to sin? Well, if you want to sin, you're going to do what you most want to do. And you're going to start obeying sin. You're going to start listening and obeying to those passions of sin. And you can put a Christian label on it if you want. But the result is the result that Paul gives here for those who are slaves to sin. The result is death. I think that means both eternal death. He's going to get to that later as well. But also a present death. A, a no communion with the Lord. No fellowship and walking in step with the Lord. That death. That the shadow of that eternal death is stretching back into the present. That's the death he's speaking of. Now I took you to Cinderella. Now I'm going to take you to Beauty and the Beast. I guess I have princesses on the mind. I don't know. I have three girls. In Beauty and the Beast... This is after Belle has been in the castle. If you're familiar with the story, she's been in the castle for a while. She's starting to get used to the place. The beast is kind of softened a little bit. He's a little bit nicer than he was before. She can move about the castle. She has dresses, like it's like just tons of dresses. Whatever she wants, she has them. She has this beautiful place to live. She's got a library that she can read all the books to her heart's content. And now all of a sudden these strange people are, are kind of friends, even though they're, they're different than her. They're not quite human and, and in the middle of this, all, all this is going on, she, she starts to have like, there's some fun being had at the castle. They start having dances and doing stuff together and they're having a lot of fun. And in the middle of this, in the live action version of Disney, Beast asks her, he says this, he says, you think you could be happy here? And Belle responds, can anyone be happy if they aren't free? And the life of sin offers something, doesn't it? But look at all you can enjoy. You can have all of these things. Won't that be good? Isn't that enough to be happy? Can't you be happy here? Look at all that you have. Look at all that you can be offered. But don't miss that it doesn't let you leave the castle. Don't miss that the place is still a little strange because everything's under a curse and that people aren't what they're supposed to be. Don't miss that there's a beast kind of trolling around this castle still. Don't miss that there's no power to get out on your own. Can anyone be truly happy with that? The life of sin, it, it offers much. It looks good. But to remain in it and to obey it, Paul says, is enslavement. And that enslavement leads to death. In verse 16, there's another option. Grace comes through the second Adam who breaks the spell that's hanging over the castle of the first Adam. He transforms beasts and he sets people free. And the reign of grace offers freedom, but not freedom for anything. Freedom to be a slave. You see, one is either a slave of sin or a slave of obedience, he says in verse 16. Now that's interesting. Did you think he was going to say slave of obedience? He might have said slave of righteousness. He's going to say that later, verse 18. Or slave of God. He's going to say that later too, verse 22. So I think that there's some parallels there with what he's saying. But here, he starts out with, you're a slave to obedience. Now, why does he say obedience? I think when he says obedience, he's emphasizing something. Emphasizing that life, under the reign of grace, isn't freedom to do whatever. Isn't just like, whatever you want to do, you're under grace now, do that thing. Remember, that's the question he's answering. Should we just, we're under, we're under grace, should we just kind of do whatever? Can I continue in sin? No, uh, we're to be slaves to obedience. It, it isn't a freedom to live in sin. Life under grace is characterized and is to be characterized by submission. Submission to God. Obedience to God. 
listening to God, putting our lives under God, being a slave to God. To be under grace is, is not to be free to sin, but to be free from sin, to obey God. And Paul doesn't back away from that image of slavery here. He says, this isn't the only thing that Christians are before God, but it is an important element of our relationship to God. We are slaves to God. And he says, you are to be slaves, you're either slaves to sin or you're slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness, which again is a, is a glorious light instead of a shadow that goes all the way from eternal righteousness where we'll be forever with God, but it, it blends into the present. It's a present possession. We're counted righteous now in God's sight, and it's a future destination. And so in other words, this slavery to obedience that leads to righteousness, this is a good kind of slavery. And the why of that becomes clearer as he continues to explain. Verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I love that right in the middle of this logical argument that Paul is laying out, answering an objection to the gospel that he's been describing in the last five chapters, right in the middle of that, he stops and he gives thanks. He stops and he praises. He stops and he endures. Thanks be to God, he says right in the middle of this. Because of union with Christ, because of the realities that that brings, Paul breaks out into thanksgiving for that thing that it brings. And what does it bring in here that he gives thanks for? Slavery. He's thankful for it. And it's not strange when it's understood, this slavery, and that he would give thanks for it. When we understand that all of us in Adam were under the reign of sin and death, let's just stop calling it a reign and start calling it a tyranny of sin and death that had kept us under its thumb, that was leading only to one place, and that we could feel its effects even in the present, death. That's the reign that we were under, but God broke into that reign, and he broke in with his own reign. And in that place where he breaks in, he carves out a people for himself in Rome. And Paul knows that reality is true of them, and so he thanks God. Look what you've done, God. Thank you that they were under this tyranny, but now all of a sudden they get to be slaves to something so much better. The gospel and the reign of grace through Jesus makes a, did you catch these words? Were once, makes those words reality in the life of God's people. So that we could have that story. Actually, all Christians have that story. We were once something, but now. If you're a Christian, you were once like the Roman Christians, under God's wrath, suppressing the truth, living in all manner of immorality, sexual immorality, and self-righteous judgment of others. We were under the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness. And we might have thought it was freedom. And I can do whatever I want. I don't have to live for the Lord. I'll do what I want. But really, we were enslaved to sin, obeying its passions. But in the middle of that place, God met us and he broke us out from the tyranny of sin and death and delivers us over into a new kingdom, a new reign. Amen. Do you know who you once were? Can you put those words, were once, or I was once, into your story? so that you now know who you are. I love that this is all over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a similar story that they have. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here it is. And such were, were some of you. We put our name in there. Like we, we, we're in that. Such were some of us. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul says the same is true of the Roman Christians. It's true of Christians everywhere. Such were some of you. But now. You were once these things, but now. And Paul, he looks at the Roman Christians and he, and he thanks God that you were under the tyranny of sin and death, but now a new reign has broken into your lives. And so thanks be to God. He's like, no credit to you. You didn't do it. You didn't get out from underneath sin and death. God delivered you. So he says, thanks be to God. No credit to them. By the work of grace, there's been now an exchange of slaveries. Everyone's going to serve something. Paul says you're either serving sin, you're a slave to sin, or you're a slave to, to obedience, slave to righteousness, slave to God. And by the work of grace, you can exchange slaveries. And notice that this slavery to righteousness, this slavery to obedience, is a slavery that issues from the heart. You know what he says in verse 17? You're, you're obedient from the heart. If you're thinking through this rightly, I think that you see that this obedience from the heart is, is something that had been spoken of long ago. This is a, a new covenant reality. You remember in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they spoke of these things that all this word needs to be coming. It's going to be written on your heart. There's a new covenant coming. It's going to change you from the inside out. You're going to be able to obey, not just outwardly, but from the heart because the law is written there now. I've got a new covenant that I'm making with you for that very purpose now. And here he says, there's this new covenant reality that you're slaves to obedience, that you're slaves to God, you're slaves to righteousness because it's coming from your very hearts. How did those new covenant realities come? They were promised to come by the work of God. Paul stops and thanks God that that work has happened in the Roman Christians. It only comes by the power and work of God. And he says that this, you're obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. That seems to be those new covenant realities come to bear, come to light in light of the gospel. It's the teaching of the gospel that does what the law could never do and brings forth this obedient from the heart so that now there's this desire to be a slave to God. I want to be a slave of obedience, a slave of righteousness, a slave to God. I, William Cooper says this well in his hymn. It's called Love Constraining to Obedience. He says, now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. And he goes on to say it changes duty into choice. Now we don't think of our slavery, so like, what do I have to do? It's like I get to be a slave to God. He broke into my brokenness, into my, the tyranny of sin and death in my life, and now... I want to serve him. I want to be a slave unto him, whatever he wants. The standard of teaching that Paul speaks about, this new covenant reality, what it does is it exposes slavery to sin for what it is. So you start to see the emptiness of sin, the emptiness of that life, the emptiness of obedience to sin, and you don't want it anymore. And so you start thinking about, how can I exchange this slavery for another? The standard of teaching produces longing to live righteously, holy, to be a slave of obedience, to be a slave of righteousness. Now make no mistake, there are whitewashed tombs where obedience to God and righteous living is not from the heart. It looks okay on the outside, but on the inside there's only death. That's nothing other than slavery dressed up, slavery to sin mass, and that's not what grace does. 
under the reign of grace, the law is written on the heart. So it changes the person all the way down to their desires. So if you want to know, am I a slave to sin or am I a slave to God? Start looking at those desires. What do I actually want to do? What is characterizing my desires? Do I want to serve sin or do I want to serve God? And that might give you a pretty good idea of where you are before the Lord. Under the reign of grace, the law is written on the heart so that, so that this word goes all the way down and hits to the point of desires. So that now, I don't want to do those same old things anymore, at least not in the same way. I want to serve and love God. So much so that he could say in verse 19, that I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you, were once, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Because of those things, verse 17 and 18, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. I love that Paul continues this analogy of slavery. He doesn't back off one bit. I wonder if that seems wrong to you. He doesn't back off of it. He, he actually kind of sort of admits, I think in a way here in verse 19, that it's maybe not a perfect analogy. In other words, I think what he's saying is, is it doesn't express every part of all our relationship to God. Now, it doesn't give everything. Now, we're going to see all sorts of stuff in Romans. You're, you're a child of God. You're adopted. You're, all these things are going to be given to us as who we are in relationship to God. But, but here's an important one, and that's why he doesn't back off of it. Slave. Slave to God. It's an important part of that relationship to God. I want to say don't buy into some sort of Christianity that isn't a slavery with, with all the restraints, restrictions, and requirements that God wants. Don't buy into a, a Christianity that doesn't have restraints, restrictions, or requirements from God. Buy into the Christianity that's actually in the Scripture, which has all kinds of restraints, restrictions, and requirements. That's not all it is, but those are the kind of things that God puts in our life in order to bring us to the right kind of freedom. There is a real losing as a slave would, a real losing of our autonomy, of ourselves, in order to take on his life. There's a real losing of ourselves in order to be found in him. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he bids us come and die. Take up your cross. Yeah, he says, hey, if you're, if you're burned and heavy laden, you're weary, you, you can come unto me and you're going to find rest. My, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But don't miss that there is an actual yoke in that. There's something there still. And don't buy into the reality that this isn't a good yoke. And that our life being lost in order to be found in Him isn't a good thing. Isn't good news. That's why Paul says thanks in the middle of this whole argument in verse 17. That's why Paul gives thanks for the Romans because he knew that this slavery to God, to righteousness, to obedience is a good slavery. He gives thanks that they're under it. He knew it himself. The next time he gives thanks in the middle of things is in chapter 7, verse 25, to kind of close out after the civil war of the soul. Here's what he says to end chapter 7. Thanks be to God, because he's speaking of his own life. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I serve myself, serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's thanking God for the work of him in his life so that he could now be a servant, a slave of the one true living God. He knew slavery to sin. He knew presenting his members as, a, as an offering to sin to do what, they wanted, what sin wanted of him. He, he knew holding the coats of those who had martyred the saints. 
He, he knew using those hands to, to snatch up Christians and drag them away and put them in jail. He knew how he'd work and strategize in his mind so that he could destroy the very church of the living God. He knew how to do that, and he knew that he'd been delivered. He could say that he once offered his members as slaves to unrighteousness, but now he, he doesn't any longer. By God's grace, he knew slavery to unrighteousness, and now he knows slavery to righteousness. And he says, thanks be to God. He loved it. He's not sad that now he's offering up as a slave his members to God. He, he's so thankful for it. L listen to what he says in, in, Philippian, to, in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's a guy who's saying, I am so glad that that is all lost now. I will give anything to be a slave for that kind of righteousness that I have now. Amen. Paul gladly offered himself. And when we know the freedom from sin that the reign of grace ushers in, then we can know the same kind of glad-hearted offering of ourselves as slaves to God that Paul knew. The issues, not from external sources, but from our own hearts that wants to obey Him from inside. One of our deepest longings and desires as Christians is to honor and serve and do whatever the Lord wants, to be at His disposal. And that's exactly what Paul is going to go on. He's going to push it another foot down the field and say, yes, that's what I want you to do. I want to call you to do that very thing. Offer yourself gladly up to God. Notice again the pattern of chapter 6 that Paul follows. He's given verses 16, 17, 18 statements of what God has done, of his work in their lives. He, he's given indicatives there. Here's who God is. Here's what he has done. These are objectively true. And then he's going to bring in verse 19, this imperative. Verse 19, this command. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Because of what God has done and the realities that have come to bear in the reign of grace and what it does for you and in you and through you, because of that great objective reality, now respond rightly. Now present yourselves as obedient slaves to God. Present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Everybody is going to serve something. All are slaves to something. And here's what Christians are. Christians are slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to God. We're slaves to obedience. And we shouldn't back off of that analogy any bit. We're slaves to these things. And so now he says, in light of that's actually what has been achieved in your lives, you, you are slaves to God. You are slaves to righteousness. Now present yourself as slaves to righteousness. Present yourself or your members as a slave to righteousness. Again, he uses that members word, that, that word that, that so draws the, the point down to the body, the body that is the very means of carrying out any sin that we can think of. Right? In chapter 1, you suppress the truth. How did you do that? With your mind. You committed acts of sexual immorality. How did you do that? The members of your body, you carry out sin in the body. It's the means, the instrument that you use to carry out sin and see it to its full fruition. And he is saying all have served something. And Christians were those who once, there's that word again here in verse 19, you once were something, but now you're not that anymore. So what do you need to do? Present. Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading 
to sanctification. In other words, God has worked, now you work. He says it in Philippians, like, God works in you, now you work out, right? God works in you, and you are to work this thing out. I love one theologian says it this way, that God affects the sanctification in us only by means of us ourselves. He does not annihilate our personality, but he lifts it up. He does not kill our reason and our will and our desires, but rather he quickens them. He takes them from death to life. Then as much as they were dead, and he puts them to work, he makes us his allies. And hear this word, I love this, co-laborers. Paul calls Christians united to Christ by their faith in Jesus to start laboring. Do some work. Roll up your sleeves. Present your lives, your members, your bodies as slaves to righteousness. It ought to be a little bit like the attitude of Peter at the foot washing. Do you remember the scene where, where he, Jesus, he, he puts on the towel and he gets the basin of water and he goes to the disciples' feet and he stops at Peter's feet and Peter says, don't wash my feet. No way. And Jesus has to tell him, like, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And here's the attitude, right? This is where we should be. Well, then not just my feet. Oh, give, give it to me. The whole thing. Give me a shower if you need to. I'm all in. That's the attitude that we ought to have. We're all in. Like, not just a part of me. Like, I want to present my entire life to you. We do that practically by, by presenting ourselves. Maybe even daily you wake up as much as you're kind of aware of the day. And be like, here I am, God. I'm not my own. I've been bought at a price. I'm yours. Like, we, we might do it by singing. Take my life. Let it be fully consecrated to you. You might do it by looking at, if you got the tattoo from last week of the bull, you might do that. You might look at that in the mirror and you say like, that's me, God, right here. I'm that bull. Or, or if you have the shirt, I have the shirt. You can remember, you remember the bull. I'm between the, the, the altar and the plow. And God, I'm ready for whatever you want. You want me to serve? I'm going to pull as hard as I can. You, you want me to be on the altar? I'm going to jump on that altar. I want to be at your disposal, whatever you want. And one author, I think it helps think through this, and, and I've used this myself. It might be something as simple as saying this. I offer my eyes to Christ. I offer my ears to Christ. I offer my feet to Christ. I offer my mouth to Christ. I present myself deliberately, consciously, sacrificially to Him. You, you notice, like, He kind of almost in a sense goes from head to toe. And you say, from head to toe, I want to present my members as slaves to righteousness, obedient to God alone. Like, let my mind be only used to thoughts of you. You told me to set it on things above. Let my, my, my eyes only look at things that are worthwhile, that are useful in what I need. You be my vision, God. Let my mouth speak only words that are fit for the occasion. Let my ears hear good news and, and make sure that as I'm listening, I'm also not just listening to the things out here, but I'm also primarily listening to you. Let my heart beat the same kind of way that you want it to beat. Like, let it be yours, my hands. Like, you just go head to toe all the way down and say, this is me, God, before you do with me what you will. I'm yours. You bought me at a price. I'm ready for whatever service that you want for me in my slavery to obedience, in my slavery to righteousness to you. And that attitude and that presentation that's issuing from the heart of all actual Christians is never an attitude or a heart that would say, I guess I can sin because I'm not under law anymore, but I'm under grace. It never goes that way. So who are you presenting yourself to? And what are the actual ways that you're using your members, your physical body, to show what you're presenting yourself to? 
Right? There's a book, Body Keeps the Score. Haven't read it. But the idea, right? The body is showing what's actually true. What you are a slave to, your physical body will actually reveal as well. Now, maybe not outwardly as evident as inwardly, but it is revealing it. So, what do your members show? If you're slaves to sin, here's what he says that is going to lead to a living lives of impurity and lawlessness, that's going to lead to more lawlessness. But if you're slaves to obedience, again, this is physically in some capacity shown, again, not exclusively externally, but it's shown. And if you're slaves to obedience, then, then your members are going to show that you're slaves to righteousness, and it leads to sanctification and more righteousness. So the, the body concretely is going to proclaim our slavery, whether slavery to sin or slavery to God. And under the reign of grace, we now have the freedom to present our lives as slaves to righteousness. Now, Paul knows his readers know the difference between presenting themselves for sin and presenting themselves for righteousness. He told them, you once were these things. You once were. And now he's going to say in verse 20, rehash this a little bit. You, verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Again, there's a were for Christians. This is what you were, free in regards to righteousness. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, we're, we're thrilled that you're here, and being freed in regard to righteousness might sound like a really good thing. Again, do what I want, and I'll have to listen to God. Awesome. Sign me up. But let's remember that if you're free in regards to righteousness, you're not free from anything. You're still a slave to sin. And let's look at sin rightly. Sin is a cruel master. Listen to verse 21. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. Paul's working to motivate Christians, right? He wants them to, verse 19, present their members as slaves to righteousness, as slaves to God. And he looks back and he says, you guys look back. Remember what you once were? Remember what that was like when you were free in regards to righteousness? Remember what that led to? You look back on those things in a sense of shame. Good fruit was lacking. It wasn't there. You look back with a sense of shame of who you once were. And we could look at all those things and, and agree with the Corinthians and agree with the Romans. Such was I. So what Paul says is, you remember that? Stop it. Stop it. Don't go that way. Because those things only end in one way. Don't present yourself to those things anymore. Because you remember how bad that was? You remember the shame you feel when you look back at that? Stop going that way. Instead, present yourselves to slaves to God. Because that slavery that you had to sin when you were free in regards to righteousness only led to death. Christians are not under sin and death anymore. We are under grace. Verse 22, he says, But now, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Perhaps it's clearer now why Paul never lets go of that analogy of slavery. This analogy for Christians that's not just needed, it's important for us to understand that we drop our autonomy at the Lord Jesus' feet and we take on His life. It's important for us to know that there is an actual characterization of obedience that follows all those who are actually following after Jesus. It's important for us to have this, but now we're not just seeing this is an important aspect of our relationship with God, but it's actually a really good one. This is good. It's good to be a slave to God. For when one is under the reign of sin and death and a slave to sin, their wages, get that in verse 23, wages is death. 
That's what they deserved. God, in a sense, like he gives them over to the very thing they deserve. You're under wrath and judgment, and I'm going to give you those things. That's not a good end. Their wages are death. And again, I think this is death's shadow that's creeping into the present. But it's especially contrasted here in verse 23 with eternal life. So the death that he speaks of is primarily an eternal death. That is what is due. That is the wages of all who are born in Adam. It's deserved and it's earned for all who are slaves of sin. But, notice the next contrast here. There's a contrast with wages. The wages of sin is death, but not wages. Free gift of God. Free gift. Undeserved. Unearned. Something bestowed. And here's the next contrast. It's not leading to death. The free gift of God is eternal life. He says it's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He reminds them there's only one place where this is found. Everything else is slavery to sin and death and to lead to death. But in Christ Jesus our Lord, you get this free gift bestowed upon you that leads to life. You have to be united to Jesus by faith. And if you're united with him, you've died with him. And now you don't have to let sin reign anymore. And if you're united to him, you're a slave to God. You're a slave to him. And this is a slavery of the kind that doesn't end in death. The slavery of the kind that ends in life. What kind of slavery is that? It gets free gifts bestowed upon them. There's this story told of Civil War days before America's slaves were freed. Now, I have not verified this at all. I have no idea if this is true. This is just a story told somewhere. And the story is about this northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. And as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and he told her, you're free. And with amazement, she responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? And he said, yes. And to say whatever I want, yes, anything. And be whatever I want, yes. And even go wherever I want, yes, he answered with a smile. You're free to go wherever you'd like to go. And she looked at him intently and replied, then I'll go with you. don't know if that's true, but that's true in the gospel, right? Here's the one who came, and he buys us from our slavery to sin. He buys us back. Redeems is the word we use. He redeems us. And he says of us, go do whatever you want, in a sense, right? But what do we want to do when we've been redeemed and purchased? I'll go with you. And if we go with him, we have a slavery to obedience, right? We have a slavery to righteousness. It's actually issues from our hearts, the thing we want to do. It's slavery, that word assaults our American ears and sensibilities. Perhaps it even offends us that God would call us to slavery. But this is the one who came as our propitiation, the one who took on the wrath of God so that might be turned aside from us. This is the one who came as the second Adam to break the curse of the first Adam. This is the one who when we present ourselves as a slave to him, he says, the fruit you get is this fruit of righteousness that leads to sanctification and eternal life. This is a slavery that ends in eternal life as a free gift bestowed on us of those who, who couldn't work their way out of any other kind of slavery. He says, I'm just going to give you eternal life. That's the kind of slavery. That's a good slavery. Amen. One who would give himself up for me, who would redeem me, is one worthy of being a slave to one you can entrust your enslavement to. In the face of one who could be my propitiation, set me free from sin, grant me eternal life. How could I say 
well, should I live under sin because I'm not under the law anymore, but under grace? Instead, it's the attitude of one who says, here I am. Altar, plow, you choose. I'm here for you. We can present ourselves as such a one as a slave to righteousness. If you're united to him by your faith in him, let me call you to present yourself again. And one of the ways that we do this and actually express it in our members is that we take the Lord's Supper. This is an extension of our faith, an expression of our faith. When we say that we are those who have been purchased, that we are those who are slaves to the one whose body was broken and whose blood was poured out, that our sins have been forgiven, but they haven't just been forgiven. He actually wants real relationship with us right now. There's something present that we need to be doing and that he's going to come back and finally and fully finish this thing. And so we take this meal as a remembrance of what he's done, as a statement of a declaration of what is currently true because of what he has done and our faith in him and what he will do one day. That he's going to come back and set everything right. If you're not his, this meal is not for you. We would say to you that the wages of sin is death. That you deserve death from the Lord. But we don't want you to receive that death. We would and said, whether you hear about this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and receive him. If you're not a believer, please don't take this meal. Instead, take Christ. And if you don't know what that means, please find one of us, find another Christian, ask him, what does it mean to know and love Jesus Christ? And, and maybe we can take this meal another time. But if you're Christ, let's say again, present ourselves again, I'm yours. Would you pray together? Jesus, we want to go with you. We've got piles and piles of rubbish behind us. Ways that we've lived, things that we've wanted, things that we've said and thought, and the rebellion against you gave us a pattern of life, a pattern of work that we are now ashamed of and brought nothing but misery and death. And so we want to continue, Lord, to go forward with you in freedom and in sanctification. And we respond today in the only appropriate way, God. We offer everything to you, every part of our lives. We take this bread in this juice, and we remember that you gave everything for us. You gave your members, your body, for our sake so that we could be spared your wrath, and we want to give all of ourselves to you, our minds, what we think about, our mouths, what we say, our hearts, deepest desires, the actions of our hands, our feet, and where they take us, Lord. We offer them all to you. And we are gladly and joyfully your slaves. Thank you, Jesus, for submitting to death and even death on a cross. We know from your example, submission is not a bad thing. God, let us obey your commands. Let us delight in you.